Welcome to the Global Development Institute podcast. Based at the University of Manchester, we're Europe's largest research and teaching institute addressing poverty and inequality. Each episode will bring you the latest thinking, insights and debate in development studies. I want to start off our discussion uh, by going back in time, uh, 20 years, when China joined the World Trade Organization uh, in 2001. As you can see from uh, this picture on the slide, the mood was jubilant. Uh, There were these very high expectations that this event would usher in a new era of liberalization in the Chinese economy. Um, And the hopes were that through a common set of global trading rules and through mutually beneficial economic exchange, WTO entry would peacefully integrate a rising China into the international order. Over in the United States, we had President Bill Clinton putting his case forward for China's WTO entry and arguing that under the WTO, some of China's most important decisions for the first time will be subject to the review of international bodies with rules and binding dispute settlement. Treasury Secretary Larry Summers, who was also a strong supporter of China's WTO membership, similarly argued that by learning to play by the rules, China will strengthen the rule of law, which will enable it to become a more reliable partner and a fairer society. So why were there such high expectations um, for this, uh, this critical event? This was in part due to the strength and depth of China's commitments to the WTO uh, as part of its protocol of accession, uh, which you see on the slide there. So as part of this protocol, China promised to let the market rather than the state set prices. It promised to liberalize the right to trade to all firms, not just state-owned enterprises. It promised to improve the disclosure of information around economic policies. It committed to not intervening in the operation of the market, to not discriminating between domestic and foreign firms, to building a whole set of institutions for the independent regulation of the market, Uh, to strengthening the rule of law and governing the market, in short, commitments that amounted to no less than a Herculean effort to transform China's economy from one rooted in state planning to one that would operate much more on market forces. And we fast forward to today, however, and this liberal internationalist promise of integration appears to have been replaced with disappointment and discontent. In 2018, the Trump administration declared that it was a mistake to have allowed China into the World Trade Organization. And on top of that, um, recent years have seen the number of dispute cases at the WTO involving China steadily increase. China has clashed with the European Union and the United States over its status as a non-market economy. Uh, The United States and the European Union have shifted their postures to treating China as a strategic competitor. Sanctions on Chinese companies, Huawei, ZTE, Uh, there's been a trade war that sees no end. And all of these various tensions have raised concerns 
that the world is headed towards a decoupling of its two largest economies. And importantly, this discontent with China is bipartisan. So the Biden administration's trade representative and commerce secretary are sticking to the use of tariffs and other tools against China. Um, and uh, both um, secretary, both, both the commerce and trade representative have reiterated that they're committed to using all uh, tools available to the uh, US government in terms of managing relations with China. So in contrast to the integrationist expectations of two decades ago, a new conventional wisdom appears to have uh, formed around China and the global trading system. This new conventional wisdom is firstly that the WTO has failed to alter China's economic model. Secondly, China is building a state capitalist model uh, instead. And thirdly, this model is being now exported globally through national state-owned champions and state industrial policy. Now this state of affairs, as I've just outlined, poses a real challenge uh, to the promise of liberal internationalism and to the large body of research that attests to the cooperative gains that are supposed to be reaped through membership in the WTO. It also poses a challenge to research that argues that these gains from cooperation should be greater for countries like China, since China had a far more rigorous process of accession compared to other new members, and it also has larger political and economic differences with developed economies that can be reconciled through global rules. So studying and um, explaining WTO's impact on China is immensely important and the China case um, is a really important one to study, not just for itself, but also for um, our broader understanding of, uh, of um, international trade institutions. So when it comes to explaining um, these changes, my own approach is actually to push beyond this success versus failure dichotomy that appears to have sprung up around this um, question of China and the WTO. And um, my approach is, is, is to do so because it would, um, to, to commit to this dichotomy would overlook, I think, what are more important questions, which are why did, uh, when did liberalization um, actually take place and why? And, uh, and to also look at timing, you know, when did reforms actually slow down and why? And um, along these same lines, uh, I also try to push against categorizing China's WTO responses into binary categories that we tend to see in the broader political science literature, protection versus liberalization, given that the choices available to states actually are quite wide ranging, they're far from binary. So instead I argue that we have to consider how responses to global rules are mediated by state structure and also by politics within the state. Um, so following on from, from these premises, I structure the book around two main research questions. The first is to actually establish the range of strategies that Chinese state actors can adopt to engage with WTO rules. And then I move on to the main question of the book, which is why did some parts of the Chinese state um, adopt more liberalizing reforms than others in response to WTO entry? 
So the focus here is on all of the action within the state. And I do so, I focus on the state because um, the content of international rules has really changed from um, promoting free trade through the reduction of border barriers to deeper questions of how to govern the economy with increasingly enforceable rules that require what Judy Goldstein calls a fundamental and intrusive restructuring of global institutions. So we need to shift our own analysis um, beyond the uh, uh, effects and influences of domestic interest groups and beyond treating the state as simply a supplier of protectionism responding to the demands of these interest groups and focus on the impact of WTO liberalization on the state itself. And I would argue Despite the fact that China is an authoritarian single party state, right, this um, need to focus on the state is particularly true actually in the Chinese case as the main burden of adjustment um, to WTO entry fell on China's massive state apparatus. So I quote here from an interview published in a journal with a central party school official who said, um, back in 2001, WTO entry is a strategic move for our country's economic development, but also brings along a problem, which is how the party in its decision and policymaking process can defend China's national interests while fulfilling international norms and WTO rules. And he went on to say, the biggest shock of the WTO to China is aimed at our government and we're a government governed by a single party. So in reality, the ones who will feel the shock will be the party and its administrative and leadership methods. So in terms of looking then at what um, political science literature tells us about the effects of international rules on the state, um, a lot of fruitful work has been done in exploring these questions of whether and when state institutions, um, international institutions can increase compliance by permitting, uh, sorry, uh, providing a credible commitment device. And on the WTO itself, there's been um, very rich research and debate around this question of whether or not WTO rules constrain the policy space of member governments. Now, in response to this existing literature, what I, what I hope to contribute with my uh, book project here is to push against examining state responses, again, in these binary terms, as I've just outlined compliance versus non-compliance, constraint versus non-constraint, and instead to look at the range of responses available to a state and how intra-party state, uh, sorry, intra-state politics affects these um, responses. Now, one might argue that since there's um, single party rule in China, we basically need to just examine and focus on leadership preferences, but, the, the bureaucracy and other political actors within the state in China can often make things difficult or hard for the leadership. So I quote here from Deng Xiaoping himself, who said, once a political line is established, someone must, must implement it. So depending on who is in charge of implementation, those who support the party lines, uh, those who do not, or those who take the middle of the road position, the results will be different. So I focus much of the book on the WTO's impact on this tension that Deng Xiaoping is talking about, these interstate politics in China. So I want to start um, by establishing first this range of strategies, right, that China, um, Chinese state actors could adopt to engage with WTO rules. 
And to do this, we have to start with the um, reform and opening history in China, which was very much a nonlinear process involving experimental incremental um, approaches to growth. Um, as much literature has documented, right? New policies were created around the planned economy rather than an outright replacement. And new agencies were created to lead reforms alongside old ones. And so the result of this very layered approach to change is that older mindsets, older policies, older institutions remained in the governing system, even as China's economy took off. Uh, such that there was never an agreement within China's vast party state over this question of how to govern the economy. Instead, more and you know, uh, different modes of governance emerged and sat in contestation with each other as China's economic growth engine um, revved up and, and took off from the 80s onwards. So broadly, I propose to think of these different um, uh, disagreements as coalescing around three competing modes of economic governance in China. The first is what I call a directive strategy, which we can think of as market substituting in nature, in that it relies on administrative guidance and the state allocation of resources um, rooted in China's command economy. So one example would be to set production targets for firms rather than letting the market drive production outcomes. The second is a developmental strategy, which is um, market shaping in nature in the sense that the strategy involves the use of state incentives to try to draw firm, uh, firm activity from one sector to another. So for example, using tax breaks to incentivize firms into strategic high-tech sectors. And the third is a regulatory strategy, which we can think of as being market enhancing in nature. And here the state uh, acts to set and enforce rules that try to promote the functioning of the market. So exam for example, in setting standards to enhance interoperability within the economy. Um, and here then market outcomes will depend on firms competing within, within these rules. Um, and so it's the result of firm competition rather than state incentives, rather than the uh, production targets. So I argue that these various competing modes of governance um, are further um, exacerbated um, by uh, China's political structure, commonly described in terms of fragmented authoritarianism, where, we're, where we have multiple sub-state actors um, uh, competing with each other and having the authority to influence economic policy. So not just leaders at the top, but also central economic agencies, subnational governments, and so on. Um, and even within China's authoritarian regime, the, re the incentives of these various actors are often misaligned and sometimes even opposed to each other. And that means that China's economic development, which we witness, is often the product of this internal political contestation rather than the result of a master plan that's coordinated from the top down. And we have to, I would argue, use the same logic to think about the effects of globalization and WTO entry, the ways in which it's mediated by China's fragmented state structure and its internal bureaucratic politics. So now um, I want to turn to the main question of the book, which looks at why some parts of the state adopted more liberalizing reforms than others in response to WTO entry. 
And here, the book examines a series of dynamics that plays out across different parts of China's highly complex um, state structure. First, uh, the first empirical chapter looks at WTO trajectories across administrative levels in China's decentralized hierarchical state um, in order to, um, and then secondly, I move on to examine political responses within the very powerful uh, central state government in China, in Beijing, in order to explain the rise of state capitalism. And then thirdly, looking across industries to examine how uh, WTO entry affected China's quest to build globally competitive national champions. So this analysis, um, as I've just outlined here, is multidimensional, but I try to propose a um, fairly simple and straightforward theory to try to explain the various policy trajectories emerging from China. And I start by proposing that WTO entry brings about two sets of new conditions that actors within the state have to respond to. The first is open competition brought about by economic liberalization. And the second is new bureaucratic rules that stipulate how the state should govern the economy. And these new conditions have a really profound impact in shifting the incentives of actors within the state, um, which are very competitive internally within China's authoritarian state structure. So I propose that the ways in which these various sub-state actors respond uh, to these new conditions depend very broadly on the probability of being sanctioned from de for deviating from WTO rules and the prospects for their internal political advancement within, this, uh, within the CCP system. And with this cost-benefit framework, right, which is fairly simple um, and stylized, I show that the channels for sanction and advancement uh, actually vary depending on where an actor sits in China's state structure to then affect whether policy responses are directive whether they're developmental or whether they're regulatory. Now, one main challenge I faced um, in, in putting this uh, book together was this question of how to capture the use of these different state strategies over different parts of the state and across time. So what I did was to collect um, an original data set of economic policies uh, that I scraped from the Chinese web. Um, and this uh, corpus of documents contains laws and regulations issued by different arms of China's central and subnational governments covering um, over 120 manufacturing sectors, um, which gave me a corpus of over 43,000 documents. And what I did using this corpus, which basically we can think of as, as containing the ordinary language of China's economic bureaucracy, um, I then use machine learning techniques to try to uncover the topics that are latent in these documents to then identify the changing prevalence of these different types of state strategies um, issued by uh, the bureaucracy over space and over time. And then I combine that with field work, um, uh, interviews from field work uh, in China, leader speeches uh, in party documents and so on um, to try to piece together this puzzle. And so I'm just going to quickly outline the main findings from the book in my remaining time, uh, starting with these hierarchical politics of WTO entry. So what we see here, um, and my argument here is that uh, we need to think about firstly how accountable each authority is to the WTO 
And secondly, whether the industrial diversity of each unit meant that WTO entry either increased opportunities for export or alternatively raised the threat of import competition. Uh, so what I find firstly is that the central government uh, responded to WTO entry with a surge in market enhancing liberalizing policies. And so what you see here is the prevalence of liberalizing um, regulatory language in China's central, provincial, and local governments, local meaning sub-provincial, over time. And what you see is that there isn't a real trend prior to WTO entry, which is marked by that vertical line there. After WTO entry, however, we see this divergence and there's a real increase in market enhancing content from the central government, much more so than provincial governments, much more so than local uh, government policies. So what's going on here? What's driving this divergence in the types of liberalizing responses that we see from Chinese um, governments? Well, much of this liberalizing response from the central government derives from its high degree of accountability to the WTO where unlike provinces and townships, it's Beijing that plays this role of sovereign representative to China at the WTO in Geneva. So it has to account for its policies to other WTO member governments. And so in the years immediately following WTO entry, what we see is the central government engaging in a legislative overhaul to strengthen market institutions in China, reforming numerous laws, reviewing uh, tens of thousands of technical standards, and even the launching a national campaign to raise WTO awareness, uh, not just amongst the public, but also within its national bureaucracy. Um, but that's just what was going on in the central government. What we see happening in subnational governments, however, um, were very different responses, as I'll show you. So here, this figure shows us a surge in developmental policies by provincial um, governments and local governments strengthening instead their market replacing, market substituting directive policies. So what's driving these sets of governments to respond so differently? Well, on the one hand, uh, subnational governments are shielded from direct accountability to the WTO. So the city of Thalian, for example, if it enacts a WTO inconsistent policy, it's not going to be directly held to account in the WTO. It can sort of shift that responsibility to the central government. On the other hand, these subnational leaders are directly exposed to the economic effects of WTO-led competition. And that's going to affect their promotion prospects. And so, those leaders who found that they could compete to expand their exports, such as Anhui province, right, could be seen issuing industrial policies to spur provincial exports in order to chase political advancement, right, to defend their growth rates. Those who were not as competitive, such as many of China's smaller rural inland um, prefectures, who did not have as rich of an industrial mix, right? Instead had to resort to directive policies to forcibly restructure their industries, consolidate um, different firms into larger entities, eliminate inefficient firms. So engage in market substituting directive policies to respond to import competition. Therefore, what we see is that there was no monolithic response to WTO entry. Uh, while there were 
initial sweeping efforts um, to institute market enhancing policies and build market friendly institutions in China, these were by and large led by the central government. Subnational governments adopted contradictory strategies leading to this internal divergence in China's WTO um, uh, policy trajectories. So then the next chapter of the book turns to politics within China's powerful central government to explain the rise of what has come to be called state capitalism. So while the central government uh, responded to WTO entry, as I've just shown you with this initial surge of market enhancing reform, what happened over time is a loss of momentum um, in these market enhancing policies. Instead, uh, analysts started to point to this phenomenon of the state advancing while the private sector retreats. So what explains the shift? And what explains the timing of the shift in central government trajectories? Now, the dominant explanations that one tends to see regarding this question are firstly, that it was the 2008 global financial crisis that sparked China's turn towards statism. And secondly, that um, it was the new leadership in the Hu Jintao Wen Jiabao era who had more status preferences than their predecessors. And in the book, I discuss why both of these uh, explanations fall short. As I, as I will show shortly, this turn towards state capitalism actually preceded the financial crisis. And explanations that focus instead on new leadership preferences, I argue, um, assumes that central, uh, the central bureaucracy will always act as faithful agents of the leadership and overemphasizes ideological differences between the leaders in the two periods of time. And more importantly, it doesn't explain the exact timing of the shift towards um, uh, statism. Well, instead, I argue the, the shift was driven by a combination of domestic and international factors. So domestically, um, I think we have to consider the accountability relations between the party leadership and the central government, whether or not this leadership can discipline the bureaucracy and deploy the central government as a faithful agent. Internationally, we have to consider the degree to which reform-minded technocratic agencies within Beijing could use WTO rules as external leverage to gain influence over rival industrial policy agencies who were opposed to liberalization. And what I find is that during the initial years under Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji, what we had was a leadership that could very effectively discipline its central bureaucracy. So the state acted as a faithful agent of the leadership during this period in part because their support networks of these two leaders were located outside of Beijing in places such as Shanghai. So leaders could discipline central officials without necessarily hurting members of their network. And so what we witnessed during these Jiang Zemin Zhuangzi years were reforms that were directly opposed to central bureaucratic interests. So one example was um, Premier Zhuangzi's campaign to reform China's state-owned enterprises. Uh, which led to a massive consolidation and fall in the number of SOEs in the economy. Another example was the 1998 administrative restructuring where Premier Zhu halved the number of civil servants and cut the number of ministries from 40 down to 29. 
And I would argue the third example would be WTO entry itself, which was met by really strong bureaucratic resistance um, by central bureaucratic agencies that did not want external scrutiny over their domestic policy making. At the same time, uh, the initial years of China's uh, WTO period were marked by strong external leverage. And in fact, it was this external leverage that enabled Zhurongzi himself to push for WTO entry as his own support within the government for liberalization was actually quite weak. China had also committed to a clear timetable for implementing many of its commitments, such that after WTO accession, technocratic reform-minded agencies who were relatively marginalized in the bureaucracy could use that external leverage uh, um, to keep the reform efforts going. And this was also aided by the status of international law in China's legal system, which translate um, international commitments directly into domestic laws. And you don't need to enact a new set of commitments in order for international commitments to have domestic standing. So that was what was driving the surge of market enhancing um, policies that I showed in the previous slides. As the years passed, however, both of these variables started to shift. Both party state accountability and WTO leverage started to change, such that the who and when leadership um, was different from the Jiang Zemin and Zhu Rongji uh, um, years in that their ability to discipline the central bureaucracy was actually relatively weak. Instead, these leaders had to rely on the central state as a key political in, uh, constituency rather than deploying the uh, central bureaucracy as, as a faithful agent. This was true in particular for Premier Wen, who spent a lot of his career rising up through the central bureaucracy, right? So he needed to work through central agencies. That's where his support network was, was based. Um, and so what we see uh, is during these uh, different leadership years, right, um, a style of policy making that was marked by a reliance on the state and an expansion of the central bureaucracy's influence. We see this in the Premier Wen's failed efforts to restructure the central bureaucracy time and time again. In 2003, we had um, early reports that there will be several ministries eliminated in this round. Instead, only one ministry was cut. In 2008, there were efforts to create an, an energy super ministry. Those were derailed due to domestic opposition. And what we witnessed instead during these years was the, was the rise of really powerful industrial policy agencies, such as the National Development and Reform Commission, um, an agency called SASEC to, to oversee state-owned enterprise assets. And after the 2008 um, administrative restructuring, the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology. So the rise of these various industrial policy agencies at the same time, WTO leverage started to shift after um, 2008 and weakened uh, quite, quite, uh, to quite a substantial uh, um, uh, degree. Um, and so as many of these commitments that China agreed to were met, this led to a loss of momentum within the bureaucracy. And instead, many of China's international obligations started to fade and started to be ignored uh, by different agencies inside China's uh, um, uh, bureaucratic state. So 
at the same time, China had committed to so many commitments um, as part of its protocol of accession that it generated a lot of resentment um, amongst industrial policy agencies. And that led to an accumulation of opposition to reform. Um, you know, China's chief negotiator was even accused of being a traitor who had sold out the country. And so as WTO leverage weakened, this, this meant that industrial policy agencies were able to gain influence under a new leadership that relied on them as a key constituency, while technocratic agencies lost ground in, in relative terms. So this figure that I'm showing you here see, uh, shows the number of industrial policy um, regulations issued by uh, these industrial policy agencies over time. And we see this big increase around 2005 onwards, a dramatic increase in policy activism by the NDRC. After the 2008 administrative restructuring, a big surge in policies by MIIT. So this is China entering this age of industrial policy here. And the shift in trajectory we can see in a number of very important policy changes. Um, the 11th five-year plan with its focus on indigenous innovation, another uh, plan that advocated the reduction of reliance on foreign technology, announcements uh, reinforcing the role of China's state-owned enterprises in strategic industries, regulations giving procurement priority to Chinese-made products. Now, these policies had, had a real impact on business sentiments um, and on the business environment. So this figure here shows us changes in business sentiments in the American Chamber of Commerce's annual survey of its firms in China. What we see is that in the initial years after WTO entry, we see a large majority of firms saying that they have benefited either to a great extent or to a very great extent from China's economic policies. And this number falls dramatically from 2005, 2006 onwards. And you can note here that these sentiments are even more negative in 2005, 2006, 2007, prior to the onset of the global financial crisis. So counter to popular uh, perceptions, the rise of Chinese state capitalism predated the financial crisis. This is not to say that the financial crisis had no impact. It had a very big impact, but what it did do was to deepen and further entrench a shift that had already started to, to occur uh, towards developmental statism. More importantly, this change in trajectory was not necessarily a, a premeditated plan, right? It wasn't the result of a coordinated master plan, but the product of a shift domestically, um, both in party state accountability and internationally in terms of the loss of external leverage. So then turning to the third chapter, I then explore what the implications are of these shifts for Chinese industrial policy. So looking at China's quest um, for national champions, I ask whether this turn towards state capitalism brought about greater coherence to China's industrial policy in strategic sectors. What I argue in the book is that rather than disciplining the state, WTO liberalization generated greater policy conflict between China's central and subnational states. And this conflict was specifically widened through an FDI foreign direct investment channel, because we also have to take into account 
the surge of foreign capital into China with its entry into the World Trade Organization. And this is important because while both central and subnational governments seek to attract FDI, each deploys FDI towards a different political purpose. So the two key factors we're considering here are firstly what the goal of FDI is. Um, on the right-hand side there, is it to maximize capital or is it to maximize access to technology? And secondly, who has the contracting authority for FDI? Is it the central government or the subnational government? Now the goal of FDI matters because growth is a political target and it serves different political purposes for different actors within the state. For the central state, it seeks economic growth for regime promotion uh, purposes. And so WTO entry represents an opportunity to strengthen the Chinese regime um, through accessing foreign technology to upgrade the industrial structure. Subnational states, in contrast, seek economic growth for rank promotion purposes. What these subnational leaders are chasing in terms of political advancement, by and large, is to advance up the CCP hierarchy. So for them, what they're looking for is uh, opportunities to maximize the attraction of foreign capital to spur growth in the short term in their jurisdiction. Therefore, it matters whether the, the authority for contracting FDI is centralized or delegated to subnational governments because it, it, it then affects whether it's the technology component or the capital component of FDI that's being privileged in any given strategic industry. In the book, I explore these effects of FDI in two comparative case studies, looking at two strategic industries, the automotive uh, sector and the semiconductor sector. So in automotive, we have FDI being relatively centralized uh, with foreign investment controlled by very strict joint venture rules quite consistently from the 1980s onwards. In the semiconductor sector, in contrast, we had uh, far greater swings in China's FDI policy. So just elaborating um, a little on China's semiconductor uh, industrial policy, what we have is an initial, in the initial years, a joint venture model similar to the automotive industry. Um, in the 2000s, there was uh, a great liberalization of FDI. And so um, the contracting authority got decentralized down to localities. And that led to a big surge in foreign investment as the joint venture rule was lifted. This type of FDI, however, was largely focused on assembly and testing. It had very little R&D content, very little higher value-added content. And this type of investment was great because it served the short-term rank promotion incentives of subnational governments, but did not serve the technology upgrading regime promotion goals of the central government. In fact, Chinese firms that were located in places that uh, had heavy FDI uh, semiconductor presence actually found it difficult to break into these foreign enclaves. And innovation in semiconductor um, technology was actually weaker in places with stronger FDI presence. And so what we saw was the central government then responding in the 2010s onwards to reassert central control to set up a central investment fund and, and, and issuing new policies to support 
Chinese semiconductor firms, and that then led foreign firms um, to be relatively more marginalized. And these foreign firms found that they increasingly needed to partner with Chinese firms in order to access any central government funding, effectively a swing back to the joint venture models of the 1980s. So far greater swings and more, much more incoherence in semiconductor industrial policies. So in short, what we see is that globalization weakened rather than strengthened industrial policy through this FDI channel. Foreign capital, in fact, provided resources to subnational governments to bypass central industrial policy. And um, what we see is that Beijing's high-tech ambitions end up being hobbled by the subnational government's quantitative rather than qualitative approach to growth. So to sum up quickly, I hope that the findings that are presented today allows us to revisit this new conventional wisdom about China and the global trading system, rather than asserting that China has failed to alter, um, uh, sorry, that the WTO has failed to alter China's economic model, uh, showing that different parts of China's vast state apparatus in fact responded very differently to WTO entry. Uh, we had a lot of liberalization pushed forward by the central government, but subnational governments adopting divergent trajectories. To the fears that China has been building a state capitalist model, um, I hope to have shown you and persuaded you that this state capitalism was not the product of a premeditated strategy as part of an, a coordinated China Incorporated. Rather, it was the product of domestic and international policies. Domestically, a shift in uh, state accountability relationships um, and internationally, a decline in the amount of WTO leverage available uh, to technocratic agencies. Finally, to the charge that uh, China's state capitalist model is being exported globally through state-owned champions, I suggest that globalization has in, in fact supercharged China's fragmented politics weakening the overall coherence of industrial policy. So to conclude, um, while China is no doubt an authoritarian one-party system, its engagement with the international economy is far from monolithic. Instead, there's active contestation within the state between different modes of economic governance. Um, and so that, that, that extends beyond these binaries, right? Not just defiance versus compliance, protection versus liberalization. There's a broader range of state responses and we can see multiple responses emerging. So I hope that um, this research shows the importance of recentering bureaucratic politics in literature on the political economy of trade. And this is important because the impact of WTO membership um, varies across different dimensions of the state. It can uh, diverge uh, hierarchically, triggering different responses between federal and subnational authorities. It further alters the distribution of uh, power between sub-state actors. So WTO entry can empower some agencies over others creating not economic winners and losers, but bureaucratic winners and losers. And also we have to consider the uneven impacts of WTO rules. Trade is highly regulated, investment is not. And so trade liberalization can end up providing 
resources for subnational uh, actors to bypass uh, national policies, further complicating the industrial uh, policy making process. Mm-hmm.